Anyway, salam alaikum everybody and um, welcome um, to, I guess, is this our first one during the first, the last 10 days of Ramadan, right? So it's really hard to believe that we're already um, like just nearing the end. Um, I don't know how time just continues to go faster and faster. Um, I First I wanted to um, shout out to our amazing social media team. Oh because you know, there's a lot of stuff that um, the sheikh says here that is there's it's so powerful, it's so rich. It's hard to actually cull through like the content and find like really good quotes or really you know beautiful gems that are easy to share on social media that give people a sense of like what we do, what we talk about here, um, that captures people's interest and then you know has have has them kind of click through and see what's going on. Um, today, Ilhan Omar um, retweeted, or no, actually reposted, sorry, gotta get the right terminology, on Instagram, um, one of the really great quotes that you pulled about Islam being about rebellion. And, and oh, okay, this is from Joe. So this is like a team effort because we have like smart people here who pull quotes and, you know, we feed them to the social media people and then, you know, and then we, you know, they're turned into very beautiful, visually attractive, you know, like, pieces that are shared and reshared, and um, so I'm just I'm really proud of this team because I think they're really passionate about sharing like you know what we do and the message and it's like very empowering and um, and very hopeful and I think it's also a very gratifying experience because when you start seeing that um, people share on their social media and they write comments that are you know, this is my Islam, I felt this with my soul, this is the, you know, this is what I believe in, God bless Dr. Abul Fadl and the Asuli Institute, you know, this is like, this last Friday, you know, um, Dr. Abul Fadl was very vocal about calling out other Muslim organizations in a way that, um, you know, was just undeniable. And I think that that really um, struck a, a chord with a lot of people. And so it's again, it's, I'm, I'm very proud of, of what we do here and just the team here makes it all magical. So thank you very much. And you know, our, our following I think has grown and you know, it's a reflected in a lot of different ways too because you know, we always say that we get a lot of email um, and messages and you know, um, from all different places. And people you recognize are at all different stages of the journey. And um, you know, so I thought I would share just a couple of messages that I got that I thought were you know, I mean, they're just little things that you, um, that touch your heart and make you feel hopeful. Um, so um, this was from, hello, Grace Song, Professor Wolfuddle, and all those who work tirelessly on behalf of the Asuli Institute. I'd like to consider myself an ordinary young Muslim in the United States, United States, such that I am a first generation American born to immigrant parents from a country with a sizable Muslim population, Nigeria and that I am also not yet strongly rooted within my profoundly vast and beautiful Islamic tradition and heritage. Sure, I can recite Quran with basic tajweed, perform my ritual worship with the proper fiqh, and have a moral character rooted within the Islamic ethos. But as of late, I find myself being profoundly intellectually and spiritually transformed by the Usuli Institute's content. I have pages of notes and notes from the Project Illumin project and have been inspired to befriend the Quran for the entirety of my life. May Allah reward you all immensely. Amin. I really admire that the professor speaks so candidly against injustices in its many forms, such as racism, despotism, authoritarianism, especially when it comes, uh, when it seems like too many Muslim leaders and organizations are too tight-lipped, if not complicit in many of the wrongs and evils we see in the world. 
Um, however, I wanted to gain some perspective on how young Muslims should navigate the paradigm of standing up for God for the sake of justice and standing up for justice for the sake of God. And then he goes on and writes a really intelligent email that, you know, obviously he is educated. He's thinking about how ideologies, uh, he's worried about how Islamic principles, um, you know, hold up against other things that, you know, students are really concerned about Marxism, um, postmodernism, deconstructionism, intersectionality, social liberalism. And as a product of, of living in this age, um, he wants to know how to navigate. And he's worried about speaking um, without requisite knowledge. Um, and it's such a great question that, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm going to bring it up at another time because I would love to hear the answer. Maybe if we have time at the end of today, I can continue on with his email. But so, you know, it's beautiful to find someone who's clearly thinking and, and educated and wants to know how to live Islamically. Um, another one, um, Ramadan Mubarak, I hope your month has gone well so far. I recently started listening to your halakas on the Asuli Institute website based on a recommendation from one of my old Sunday school teachers, and I'm really enjoying Project Illumin so far and learning um, a lot from it. As someone who is about to start law school this coming fall, I also really appreciate how you relate the lessons in the Quran back to human rights and social justice. Thank you so much for making these halakas available um, to all of us. And it always comes with a question, like a really you know good question. So, I mean, this is also the challenge because we get a gazillion really good questions and it's hard to address them. But and, and in, in many cases, actually, the Sheikh has addressed them um, in a lot of the work we've done previously. So, you know, um, hopefully people can be patient and find their way. We'll do our best to try and make things a little bit more accessible, but it's just very heartwarming. Um, so thank you for writing to us because it actually makes us very excited and encouraged. Um, and inshallah, hopefully we can, you know, address more of these questions that I know are on a lot of people's minds. Um, and I thought that, you know, last time I shared a little bit of book history and I thought maybe I would just take this opportunity every so often to just drop little tidbits of book history because these things, you know, it's like, we lived through this process of you know, publishing and writing and editing and all of that. It's been a very long, long journey. But if we don't share these, these things, they'll just the stories will die with us, and they're very fascinating. So I thought the one story that I would share is that a little bit more of the history of the search for beauty in Islam. And I mentioned in, in my last talk that these um, individual chapters, or most of them, were previously published in the Minaret magazine at the Islamic Center of Southern California. And this was like decades ago, long before I actually even knew the professor. Um, sorry, no, no, that's not true. Um, I mean, the Minaret magazine was there, and he was publishing other things. But the things in this book actually started when, when we met. So that's, that's its own story. Um, but was, um, so for a very long time, we wanted to collect these stories and publish them. We went ahead and, and did that. And my background is in marketing and brand management, and I've written you know, a ton of proposals. That's kind of one of the things that I like doing. So I had written a very um, you know, interesting, I thought, proposal about publishing this book. And I just felt like this is really important, um, you know, considering how people reacted to the chapters and how it was really a reflection of Muslim life in America. Um, and so we sent it around to all of the Muslim publishers in America, and not one of them would accept publishing it. And it's just a fascinating story because, you know, when you think about, like, what could be more important for our lives at this time, no one was interested. We got rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. So finally, we just decided, okay, well, you know, this is really important. I mean, we recognized it. I definitely recognized it. And I thought, okay, um, we'll just go ahead and publish it, you know, through our own means. At that time, there was not a self-publishing industry, not like there is today. 
um, but there was a little imprint that was part of Roman and Littlefield, and it was, you know, it's a professional publisher, but um, it was created for academics who wrote very important work but was not like commercially viable, right? So it's like the knowledge is really interesting and important and needs to be published, but most publishers would not pick it up because they would not sell enough copies of this book to make it worthwhile. So they provided this vehicle, but you had to do the work yourself. So basically we had to, you know, hire, uh, pull together the, the, um, the manuscript, hire a copy editor, hire someone to lay out the page. And back then also it wasn't as electronically easy. You kind of had to create like camera ready pages and there's just a whole process. You know, um, I wrote the marketing materials. Um, I worked with um, people to develop the copy. You know, so you had to hire a book cover artist and then, you know, so it really was a manual process. And um, once you sort of submit everything in, um, then basically it's easy for the publisher just to turn around and, and publish it. And so that's how the first version of the Conference of the Books was published. This is actually the second version. I should have actually brought my first copy. So the first copy was, um, it was I think like, I don't remember exactly the number of chapters now, it was like maybe in the 50s or 60s, and this one has like in the 80s. So it was the first go around, and it was a really beautiful, um, you know, we published it as a paperback and also as a hardback, and it's still probably in circulation. You can look it up on Amazon. It's got kind of like the same imagery. Um, and, you know, it was a beautiful book and it made its way. I mean, seriously, Allah like got it around and we started hearing amazing stories. Probably one of the best stories that we heard was that one of the law students of the professors at UCLA traveled one summer to her um, native home, I think somewhere in Iran, and went, is it Iran, right? Yes. And went up into the mountains in this very tiny village, like out of, you know, there was just like nothing around. And so she was visiting from America and her hosts were like, well, you know, we want to at least give you something to read, you know, in your language, because she spoke English. And so they searched around the village and they were able to find two books. One was like a book on engineering in the English language, and the second book was The Search for Beauty. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> so she was like, oh my God, this is my teacher. This is, the, this is like my book. And she started reading it and she fell in love. And, you know, and we would get like every so often these like, you know, emails from people and stories from people. And I, and I often say again, like people would write and say, this book brought me back to my faith. I really, you know, was despairing. I never, you know, I like what I see from the Muslim community was not what I felt in my heart was beautiful. And then I found your book and it made me feel like this is the Islam that I always knew and recognized. And so, you know, when we would get messages like that, that was just incredible. So that was the first version. Then, um, you know, somehow Allah inspired the people at Roman and Littlefield to find this book and they came back to us and they said, you know, we would like to republish this under our, our main Roman and Littlefield title. And so then we went through, you know, we, we went crossed over from sort of that academic imprint to the mainstream imprint. And then this second version, um, the, the professor took the opportunity to add um, a bunch more chapters that were not previously published. And it's interesting too, because if you read it, you notice like um, the, the tone of it, you know, in the first part of the book, um, it is like reflective of kind of a magazine, what's, you know, that's like writing about things that are happening. But in the second half, when he was really just, you know, birthing these chapters, they became sort of more philosophical, ethical, you know, spiritual, and um, they just took a different, you know, tone. And so when we put it all together in this book, it's really a, a special volume that um, is really hard to describe. But it's it's kind of like um, 
praising God and you know seeking your faith, seeking beauty, and it's it's just a, a completely amazing experience. So um, anyway, again, it's timeless and it's it's beautiful, and I hope that um, if you haven't read it, you will, and if you um, have the opportunity to share it with friends and family, especially people who are struggling, that um, that will do that because I think this is a way that Allah reaches hearts and and brings them back. So. That's my book history story for today. <laughs> I'll think of another. I'll think of more tidbits to share as as we go. So I'm looking forward to um, another amazing halakha and uh, just oh sorry. And let me give a, a few last plugs about fundraising. I mean because it is the last ten days of Ramadan. Um, you know please please um, take the opportunity to make your donation really um, you know really sing and. Um, you know, earn a lot more blessings. I and mean, we have a lot of really important projects here. Um, you know, I, I really hope that um, people will, will be part of this journey. We've had more people adopt more surahs, and so that's exciting. Um, if, you know, people are worried about, like, the cost, because I know um, there have been people who have told me that I'm trying to save up, and, you know, in that process, I lost the surah that I really wanted to, to um, adopt. So let me know if there's a, a surah that really speaks to your heart and you want to make a pledge. And then, you know, we can work out, you know, over time, you can donate um, in whatever way it makes it comfortable. So um, anyway, this is such an important project. I don't want anyone to miss out or feel like they don't have the opportunity to be a part of it. So, and it's all Zakat eligible. So whether you um, donate um, for the publication, for a bookcase, for a surah, for just, you know, whatever work we're doing, um, it's all Zakat eligible. Right, Sheikh? Okay. We get that question a lot. It's like, are you sure it's like head eligible? Yes, it is. Okay, so just to be clear. Okay, thank you so much. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Salatu wassalamu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tabawu ihsani ila yawmiddin. Wa mashrah li sadri yassili yawmdi wa ahlul uqdata wa illasani wa qawdi wa ahli yawzim. Okay, so inshallah, today we'll do Surat al-Mursalat. Um, actually, it's number 77 in the... Number 77 in the Quran. Uh, Remember that we are in the last 10 days of Ramadan. Um, as I've said in several khutbahs now, or, or a number of khutbahs, uh, each Ramadan is an opportunity, and none of us know if the Ramadan that comes next, whether we will be around or not, or who is going to be around. And it is always, you should always act on the assumption that those that you care about will not be around next Ramadan and that you will not be around next Ramadan and act accordingly. It's, uh, as Hamad uh, Ghazali has pointed out numerous times in his Hiya Alumdin, a, a truly beautiful life can only be led if the remembrance of death is right before your eyes. 
because it is often the remembrance of death that acts as an impulse for us to do good and to be beautiful. You don't know if next Ramadan you'll be around, and the last 10 days is an opportunity. So grab the opportunity. Don't be among those that let opportunity slip between your fingers. Alhamdulillah, subhanAllah. And uh, I just want to underscore what Grace said. Help, help me keep this effort alive, because Allah knows that uh, uh, when you are doing things as an individual with limited support, it. Uh, it often uh, you're often just catching up you you're, you're always just keeping barely above water um, and uh, it gets exhausting so the more you support this institution inshallah I, I pray that it it lives on and the good that comes from it will live on uh, because as you see, and you know, just you can take a look, the, look at the Muslim world everywhere, and there's nothing that we need more than to reconnect with our, with God's revelation, and to have God speak to us, and speak to us um, as we are now, not as we were 1,400 years ago. We need God's revelation to speak to us as we are now. And if you understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you understand Allah's revelation, you will also understand that Allah does not create and forget. Allah is with you everywhere, every place, all the time. It's just you, you who chooses to notice or not to notice. And it is your Iman that opens your eyes to the presence of divinity and the presence of the antithesis of divinity. In the same way that divinity exists all around, The antithesis of divinity, the negation of divinity, also exists all around. And subhanAllah, if you don't choose the light, you will slip into darkness. There's no other way. If you don't choose the light, you slip into darkness. And if you don't maintain the light, and you allow the light to flicker out, darkness sets in.
and the Quran, the Quran, is that spark that brings the light to life, is the way that you ignite the light, the way that you turn the light on in your life. If you lose your connection to the Quran, then you exist with delusions of illumination. You see a light here and there from far away, and then you say, Oh, maybe there is enlightenment, enlightenment, and you run after it. And then it turns out to be a mirage. And then you spot another light somewhere, and you think, okay, there is a light, I'm going after that. And then it turns out to be a mirage. And so you waste the life that you've been given, and this precious gift that we call life, chasing really shadows from one shadow to another shadow to another shadow until life is over. But if your relationship with the Quran is healthy and real, then you have the, the key to turning on the light right in your hands all the time. You turn on the light, and you maintain the light, and you walk in the light. Life has taught me that there are many people, many people who say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah anna Muhammad rasulullah who do not walk in light and who do not understand the Qur'an and, and who do not have the Qur'an speaking to them. There are even many people who become highly esteemed as Islamic authorities. Regardless of the profession, it doesn't matter. Some of them are professionals, engineers, doctors, whatever. Some of them are imams, full-time, whether in Islamic centers or whatever. But the gift of light, the gift of Allah's beauty, the gift of Ihsan is something very precious. And it requires, like all real gifts, it requires so much love and so much care and so much compassion and passion on your part. It is not con cons consistently maintained by your love, your energy, your passion, and if it's not consistently fed, it flickers out. And the worst thing in the world, if you become like those 
who can no longer distinguish between darkness and light because effectively they become blind. So the light goes out around them and they still can think that they exist in light, but they don't. This is why in our day and age there are so many people who carry the Islamic label, who walk with the Islamic label, who rise to great levels with the Islamic label, but you see nothing of Allah's mercy and Allah's compassion and Allah's beauty on them. You don't see a light. They carry the Islamic label, but they stand for injustice. They stand for oppression. They stand for inequity. They stand for ignorance. You know, Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali, Allah my teacher, used to say that it is impossible, just simply a complete paradox, to combine Iman with a belief in injustice. A mu'min cannot be someone who supports injustice. It's an oxymoron, impossible. Because if you understand Allah, you understand what Allah is about. And Allah has taught us so many times, so often, that Allah detests injustice and detests oppression. And detests isti'alat, detests when human beings act as if entitled to dominate other human beings. So when you see a Muslim that doesn't, when you see a Muslim who's not offended by that, when you see a Muslim who thinks that domination and oppression and injustice is just normal, or at least not offensive, or can be lived with for whatever reasons. Um, you're seeing darkness. You're not seeing Islam. I heard this man I heard this man who is going to soon be in charge of our holy sites, Mecca and Medina, Muhammad bin Salman, in an interview with, in an English interview. And he said about our Prophet to an English audience that our prophet said that eventually in Islam 
there will be religious extremists. And uh, when you find these religious extremists, according to Muhammad bin Salman, quoting the Prophet, that the Prophet instructed to kill them. Of course, he's referring to a hadith attributed to the Prophet about al-mariquna fi min al-deen or al-mariquna fi al-deen or sometimes referred to as the khawarij which is is considerably through and through fabricated hadith that there will come khawarij that will rise khawarij and that when the khawarij rise fight them and kill them and I've done a, a long detailed study of this in the rebellion book it's a hadith that was invented by the opponents of the khawarij and circulated and our prophet in fact as Imam Ali radiallahu very clearly stated about that hadith that it is a fabrication and our Prophet actually forbade the slaughter of any Muslim under the guise or the claim that they are fanatic or militant and that's why Imam Ali refused to slaughter the Khawarij in his time who eventually assassinated him as I'm sure you know but this is the man who is soon going to become in charge of Mecca and Medina. He gets to define who is an extremist, and in his understanding, our prophet gave him a license to kill, to wipe out whoever he considers an extremist. Any Muslim, anywhere, on Earth or on Mars, or on Jupiter, or on Saturn, or anywhere, any Muslim who listens to this and doesn't have the light within to say, this is not Islam. is not with God. This is the stage that we've reached as Muslims. We have to be very clear about our morality and our ethics and about the way we understand our Quran and our revelation. Because if we cannot recognize immoral speech and immoral acts when they occur then there is no point to our Islam there might as well be anything an Islam that doesn't teach you beauty is not worth the name
المرسلات المرسلات is a Meccan surah and among the early revelations it was revealed after surah al-humaza There are reports that one ayah, one ayah in Surah Al-Mursalat was revealed in Medina, but I don't put much credit on, on these reports. The, the, you know, they say that ayah 18, um, that was revealed in Medina, but I mean, I, I don't put much, Wait on that. Anyway, so it's revealed after Al-Humaza, and I think we can comfortably say that it was revealed before Surah Qaf, right before Surah Qaf. So if so, then order of revelation would make it number 33, probably. In all likelihood, it's 33, maybe 32. But that makes it among the early revelations of the Quran. Of course, it, it's revealed after we have Surat al-Ikhlas, Surat al-Najm, um, Surat al-Buruj, which we've done, Shams, Ittin, Quraysh, Qari'a, Qiyamah, all of these uh, we've done. Um, but before we have Surah like Surah Al-Jan or Yasin or Furqan or Fatir um, or Maryam or Taha, all, which all come later. Okay. And as we know that in these earliest surahs, they often act to ignite precisely that thing that I was just talking about, the light inside of a Muslim's heart and the light inside of a Muslim's intellect to, to spark life into the soul of a Muslim. so that they can commence the process of transformation with the Qur'an. So that they commence the process of transformation with the Qur'an. And a lot of the earliest surahs when I say earliest, the, particularly the um, until we get surah like Yasin and Al-Furqan, which are a bit longer, um, they, they always have a level of philosophical ambiguity um, 
a level of abstractness. And as we've seen in several sore like Al-Qalam or Mudathir or Muzammin, um, the abstractness mean what, what is what I mean by abstractness is that they they there are layers of meaning within the chosen words of the Quran which is very different for instance from the much later verses in Medina that deal with legal matters um, these ayat that are clearly contextual. They're addressing a specific problem in Medina that existed at a specific time. Um, often they, they, there are no real layers of meaning. They're, they're, they're embedded in their context. But the earliest source, the, the language, it, raises what can even be described as um, a philosophical methodology. And Surah Al-Mursalat is no exception to, to this. Um, as we'll see. I'm probably juggling too many things because I'm not well organized and I fumble with a lot of stuff. Um, if I was a more organized person, I probably could make my life easier. But Okay, so, one more salat, Urfa. فالعاصفات عصفا والناشرات نشرا فالفارقات فرقا فالملقيات ذكرا عذرا أو نذرا You immediately notice, even if you don't know Arabic, the music of the verses is rapid. It's like a salvo of fire. وَالْمُرْسَلَاتِ عُرْفَا فَالْعَاصِفَاتِ عَصْفَا فَالْوَالنَّاشِرَاتِ نَشْرَا فَالْفَارِقَاتِ فَرْقَا فَالْمُلْقِيَاتِ ذِكْرَا There is a, a distinctive music to this, these verses. And as we will see, it's actually not a coincidence. And it is interlinked with the meanings of the verses themselves. Um, Surah Al-Mursalat, there is it's often the the it is said that when it was revealed, and I don't know if it has if there's any significance, but you find it in so many tafsir um, that right after the Prophet ﷺ recited Surah Al-Mursalat. Um, a, a, um, the companions who were with him at the time uh, were threatened by a snake and they, when they 
tried to kill the snake, it ran away. And the Prophet ﷺ commented that, uh, Alhamdulillah, you have escaped its evil and it escaped your evil. And, I, and I've often considered, I've often thought of, you know, could this be connected anyway to the surah? Does this have significance in the way that we understand the surah? Uh, another report that is often, um, that you often read about surah al-mursalat is that uh, al-Abbas's mother, Umm al-Fadl, uh, when she heard someone reciting Surah Al-Mursalat, she started crying. And she said, you reminded me, and this was after the Prophet ﷺ had passed away, and she said, you, you, you reminded me of the Prophet, this was the last Surah I heard him recite before he passed away. Again, you, you know, you in the books of tradition, you often find these two narratives reported. Um, do they have anything to do with the meaning of Surah Al-Mursalat? If they do, I haven't figured it out. I don't think so. Um, but it is a part of the tradition that is repeated. You know, a lot of times the our ancestors, they would transmit whatever package they found in the tradition even if they couldn't figure out the meaning of something or another they would just transmit the package for the sake of preserving the tradition and sort of in um, honestly just convey whatever they received so for whatever it's worth, I've done the same. Although I'm not, you know, I've I've been typed at several times the story of the snake and the prophet's comment has often intrigued me, but okay. So on first glance, it would seem straightforward enough. by those sent forth in succession, al-mursalat is what is sent forth. Urfa is possibly by succession. It could have that meaning. But as we'll see, it also could have other meanings. By the storming tempests in the study Quran, by the spreaders spreading, by the discerners discerning, and by, by those who bring forth the reminder, 
uzran aw nuzra to excuse or to warn but then you go back and you say al mursalati urfa al mursalat those that send things forth but it doesn't identify what those are there's an oath here but an oath by something that is not specified we know that it is as if we are at the same time that we are receiving the music of the chapter because the music is undeniable there is an there is an imagery that is being transmitted to our consciousness something is being sent forth regularly or in succession orfa as we will see could also mean persistently but it is deliberate and it is persistent and then the second image is of something storming some powerful energy action taking place when nashirati nashra so you have things being sent forth you have storms and when nashirat you have things that are spreading but again we are not, it is not specified we are not told what precisely is spreading then we come to farqati farqa right as we are tempted to adopt the picture of a storm and spreading chaos because something is being sent forth there are storms things are spreading you are tempted to say oh wow there's some major chaos taking for taking place it pulls back and it tells you as if saying no and we will see the significance of the instead of what it doesn't say and the farikat and the discerners but it says and as we'll see this actually turns out to be important so no there's a storm there's a spreading and there's discerning and what after the discernment 
there is a learning going on. فَالْمُلْقِيَاتِ ذِكْرَى So the Quran says, by those who bring forth the reminder, that's a plausible translation, but literally, فَالْمُلْقِيَاتِ ذِكْرَى is that which brings to you a reminder or a learning. And what is the result of their learning? Uzran al nuzra. Either the results are good in the sense there are positive results or positive consequences or negative because the consequences didn't pan out as they should have. Then at that point, you get what they call Jawabu Qasam, the um, the result of the oath. So the oath, you're swearing by something, but what are you swearing to or what are you swearing about? that what you are being promised will take place. So, of course, this begs the question of what is being sent forth? What is storming? What is spreading? What is the discernment? And why doesn't God, God swears by things that are more specific? Absolutely. When Allah swears by the stars, or Allah swears by the circulation or the movement of the sun and the moon, or Allah swears by al-tariq, even al-tariq is more specific. But in Mursalat leaves you with a level of suspension saying, okay, what am I being told here? And is the ambiguity here justified? Because the difference If you're ambiguous and behind the ambiguity is layers of meaning, that's brilliance. That's genius. If you're ambiguous because you are deliberately ambiguous in order to create folds of meaning, that's genius. If you are ambiguous because you are incapable of being more precise or because you are confused or because you are uneducated, that's not genius. That's frivolous. We, we don't read that type of ambiguity and say, wow, let me think very hard about what this means. 
when we notice that type of ambiguity, we say, this is not worth our time. I'm not going to sit here and figure out. And it is the, the, the line that often, the, the, the distinction between literature that lives for centuries and literature that is like a, 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 a soap bubble that just appears and pops and, and disappears is precisely it's the ability of the language to speak to generations. If you write something that cannot speak to generations, it lives for a short period of time and dies. If you write something that speaks to generations, that's precisely what brilliance and genius is. Okay. So, in the tradition, The biggest challenge for me with Surat al-Mursalat is to summarize the debate in the tradition without um, without making it sound stale or um, pedantic, because it's not. And the range of things that people debated and argued about is, is if I would sum it up and then I, before I, I, I bring it to, 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 to limit the range a bit, um, I would sum it up in, in, in five main arguments. Number one, and probably the most popular, those who said this oath is referring to a rih or wind. That when Mursalati Urfa, when winds come in succession, Falasifati Asfa and the storm and then they spread things like pollen and pollinate plants but then these winds create or these winds help facilitate life and growth and blow away um, things like, you know, when, um, what do you call it, when, um, when leaves die and plants die and the wind, you know, just scatters it and then it goes through the cycle of life. And so one is those who understood this as Allah saying, study the cycle of life as demonstrated amply by the 
activity of wind. Two, those who said, no, it's angels. It is angels who are sent forth. Do angels storm? Relying on certain traditions attributed to the prophet or some companions, he said, yes, angels sometimes cause storms when Allah is bringing down God's wrath upon a people, for instance. And angels also spread learning when they bring revelation and they help people discern false from truth. And then, they bring remembrance to people. And they warn people, Uzran or Nuzra, either people heed the warning or they're condemned because of the warning. In other words, they choose to ignore the warning and they follow consequences. The third said, third view said, well, it really refers to Rusul, to messengers, to Allah's prophets. This activity is more aptly describing the succession of prophets and their interactions with human beings. The message comes, the message of the messengers comes often causing a storm. And the storm sometimes destroys those who are condemned because they reject the message. And sometimes the storm leads to the destruction of the messenger when those who receive the message kill the messenger, for instance. The fourth school said, no, this is a reference to the signs of God, ayatullah. And the ayat could be revealed ayat, like ayat al-Qur'an, or could be the signs of creation. Remember, we said long time ago, I told you that there are, in Muslim theologians say there are two types of Qur'ans. There is the written the Qur'an, and there is the created Qur'an. Created Qur'an is creation itself. It's a Qur'an. And they said, Allah is, is talking about, look how many signs I keep sending you. And sign after sign after sign. And the fifth school said, No, al-mursalati urfa fal-asifati asfa wal-nashirati nashra, relying on certain reports attributed to companions, they said that this is a reference to the Qur'an itself. Now, what makes this a little bit more complicated is 
is that you have five verses, the opening five verses are all swearing by something, an oath by something, and five perspectives. The wind, the angels, the messengers, the signs, and the Quran. But then many scholars said there is no reason to believe that all five ayat are swearing by the same thing. So for instance, many said the first two verses, Allah is swearing by the wind. While when Nashirati Nashra Falfarikati Falka Falmulkiati Dikra, the the next three Allah is swearing by angels. And there are combinations thereof. So some said, for instance, just to give you a sense, Well Mursalati Orfa Falasifati Asfa, Allah is swearing by wind. Here, these are a reference, this is a reference to prophets. While فَالْمُلْقِيَاتِ ذِكْرَى is a reference to angels. So now, in this view, you have wind, prophets, and angels. Okay. So that is why I'm telling you, like, the biggest challenge is to do justice to the tradition while not making it sound pedantic. Because none of these scholars were just plucking in choices and taking out choices. They presented sophisticated, elaborate arguments as to why this or why that. And if they relied on a hadith or a report attributed to Alil Bayt or to the companions or to successors of the Prophet Tabi'in, part of their discussion was authenticity. What's an authentic report, what's not an authentic report? What they all saw is Allah is drawing our attention to a serious dynamic a serious dynamic in which Human beings are receiving something in motion. That something in motion is causing a turbulence. The turbulence is followed by discernment and choice. And there is an agent What's the agent? Well, the wind, the angels, the messengers, 
the signs, the Quran. Okay. The Sufis or Sufi esque tafsir. looked at this and said no what Allah is inviting us to reflect upon is what is going what is taking place inwards And here is a typical Sufi-esque approach. Al-Mursalati Urfa. Al-Mursalat is what is sent. But Mursalat is not what is sent once, but what is sent in succession. Again and again and again. Urfa means Orfa could mean so I make sure I don't forget something. It could mean a repeated pattern like Orful Khail. Orful Khail is the is the hair at the back of a horse's neck. We call that Orful Khail. So it's like Allah saying, you know, something is being sent to you in succession. It's so it's such a regular pattern, time and time and time again. I'm communicating with you. Or if we can even say, Sara nasu ila Muhammad orfan wahida, meaning people went to Muhammad uh, in successions, in groups. So it, it it could mean that 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 process of succession, regular regularity. But orfa could also mean Like an Amr bin Ma'aruf, enjoining the good or commanding what is good, Urfa could mean goodness. While Mursalati Urfa could mean what is sent to you with goodness. So in the Sufi esque approach, they said, Allah is constantly reaching out to you in goodness. Now, that goodness comes to a point where either it in fact storms within you or should storm within you. Either this truth is storming banging at your door, listen to me. There is a hereafter. There is accountability. And you choose to ignore it, 
or you open the door and interact with it. After the storm, what will spread within, or after you decide to ignore the storm either, what will spread within is either light, as they say, العصفات, a light that will bring life to what the storm challenged and tore down. Or what will spread within is darkness. where the storm has left things broken and what occupies you is just darkness upon darkness. And at that point, you will be discerning, but either you will be discerning for good or your discernment will be layers of darkness in the same way that those who discern how can I maximize my profit, how can I maximize my pleasure, how can I maximize whatever I'm maximizing, or those who elevate. And in Sufi-esque tafsir in particular, They say that that the ultimate goal of this dynamic that Allah is pointing your attention to of what will come to you with goodness knocking at your door the storm that you will inevitably confront or run away from and the consequences of that is al-ilm wal-hikmah, knowledge and wisdom. You either walk in a journey towards hikmah, towards wisdom and discernment, or you remain flat, if not deteriorate. So, you could be gaining data, ma'lumat, information, but your ilm, your actual knowledge, your discernment, continues to deteriorate. Hikmah is an even higher order in Sufi Ask Tafasir. So, among the interesting uh, the interesting discourses from the Sufi Askhtafasirs is this is just an example. Uh, I believe this is from Tafsir Jilani. So Jilani says, you know, 
when you ponder these the these five first the opening surah al-mursalat he says that it points to five categories of um No, four categories, sorry, four categories of people and the way that they choose to deal with al-mursalati arfa, with what is sent to them in goodness. He says, first, the first are ishara ila tariqat al-shuttar al-ta'irin ila Allah kal-barq al-khatif are those who are able to travel towards the divine like like lightning they they receive the message and all they want is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's all that is in their heart والثانيه the second الى طريقه الابرار ارباب المواجيد والواردات والازواق the second are those who are um, deeply pious they cannot they cannot الطائر means to to actually fly they cannot fly towards the divine like lightning but they are persistent in their insistence to reach for the divine. They don't waver in that. And for, for uh, uh, th- these would be what he would consider a nashirati nashra. The third is طريق الأخيار وأصحاب المعاملات والاستدلالات and these would be الفارقاتي فرقات this is the category of people where they're good people they are aware of the divine they don't fly towards the divine like lightning they don't have the type of determination and persistence that the second have a nashirati nashra, but the, they are rational-minded people who need, who basically find the way to God by sticking to the letter of the law. They are the sort of the mathematically oriented, very limited imagination. Um, but because they are limited imagine they have limited imagination their soul is not very active um they just want to do the right thing so they stick by the law they you know they they dot their letters uh cross their t's and walk by the straight in the straight path and he says these are like al-fariqati farqa. Basically, the, the, the distinguishers, the discerners, the, the ones who 
want to know, okay, just tell me, is it halal or haram? You know, I, I don't have much capacity to understand why or how or anything. Just give me the black letter law and I'll do it. And then he says, then there is the fourth. And the fourth are al-awam al-qani'een bil-dhikr wa-tikrar bila wujdan. But the fourth are those who just repeat, the imitate and repeat without feeling and without thought. And in Sufi esque tradition generally, that fourth category, they consider the vast majority of people to fit within the fourth category. A good, pious minority fits within the third, and then the first and the second category is, is more rare. Uh, and it, it, it's something that that's what they look for and strive for. But the, the fourth although it's the vast majority of people, it's not good because it's based on imitation and repetition and nothing else. You know, people saying tasbih, like, okay, I'm doing, doing my tasbih after prayer, but they feel nothing. Subhanallah, 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 and they count it. Okay, I've said it 33 times, okay, now. And they're yawning, you know, they're bored. They're, uh, most of the time when they're doing their ibadah, they're yawning. They're sleepy. They're like, okay, let me, you know, let me just get it over with. Or, it's constantly a burden. And in Sufi traditions, that opening of al-Mursalat, they always tell you, check yourself. Of course, if you're not in one of these four, you're in serious, serious trouble. Then you're in hellfire. But check yourself at least if you're unable to be one or two, at least be three. Because four should never be a position of resignation for any Muslim. That resigning in four is like resigning to the possibility of drifting into darkness and the flicker of light going out without you ever noticing, which I said at the beginning of the halakha. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, of course, when, you, when you're summing up centuries old traditions you you always feel like you leave things out um, but they're they're all in the in in the vein of details uh okay so we we we've talked about the main what can be said traditional approaches we as we said that the vast majority say either considered the oath is wind 
or angels. And then there are some who said, well, the oath includes messengers, signs, ayat, or the Quran. And we then talked about the Sufi-esque approach, which considered the the oath shedding light upon your own uh, self-reflection and and so on. In my view, it's not that my approach, I wouldn't describe as my, my approach as materially different. I think all of what is said is valid and, um, and insightful. And they're all plausible layers of meaning. But what I add is the following. Walmursalati Urfa Fel Asifati Asfa. You have the first oath is by Al Mursalat Urfa. That what which is sent, orfa, as we said, could either mean in succession or persistently, or it could mean in goodness. Fel asifati asfa. The fa here is uh, what the in Arabic they call harfat. That the what follows after the first oath, the first oath is al-mursalat urfa, that which is sent. Then it's like saying that that which is sent forth in succession or in goodness. And then that the that storms or philosophy that which causes storms then it says where and nashirati nashra and that which is spreads and what follows from it is that which discerns so if you look at the grammatical structure you have two categories. The first category is what is sent in succession and what follows from that are these storms. Then the second category, an-nashirat, that which is spread and what follows from that is fil-fariqat that which causes discernment. Then فَالْمُلْقَيَاتِ ذِكْرَى That which brings remembrance. So, 
the the occurrence of where before al mursalati urfa and the occurrence of where before al nashirati nashra leads me to believe that there are allah is alerting us to two categories two distinct categories And so what is then the meaning of this oath? In my view, and I've, ta I've talked about my methodology plenty of times, so I just remember that. What is sent to you, what is sent to us? One mursalati urfa. What is that is sent to us consistently and persistently? Well, yeah, wind that's possible, angels that's possible. Messengers, I think is less likely because the Quran doesn't swear by messengers. The Quran never swears by messengers. So I think that's very unlikely that this oath refers to messengers, but this is... But what is consistently sent to us in in a in a in a word is how we learn everything how we know everything you want to call it systems of knowledge it is we are constantly receiving through our consciousness constantly receiving and perceiving, perceiving and receiving information. And we are constantly channeling this information. And as we channel information, we constantly construct consciousness. And whether we recognize it or not recognize it, this is a constant ongoing process. But then there are things within us that cause a great deal of turbulence. We are always receiving information, but there are, for whatever the factors within us or without, that cause this also fought literally storms within that turns us upside down 
is material is what happens after these storms. You will be constantly receiving and you will confront and have to deal with turbulence as human beings. But what do you but what do you do after the storm? Anashirati Nashra is the settling after the storm. And the settling after the storm is what leads to discernment. Discernment not always in a good sense, but leads to what we call the processes of discrimination. The storm, the settlement, and in the settlement, you as a human being, you make decisions. I like X. I don't like X. I want more of Y. I don't want Y. I want to become a fireman. I don't want to become a fireman. I want to fight crime. I don't want to fight crime. I am a winner. I'm a loser. I am attractive. I'm ugly. I'm happy. I'm depressed. All these distinctions, the sum total of these distinctions, after you are challenged, because all of us are challenged from the time we start, from the time we have consciousness, we are challenged. What of all of that are mulkayati dhikra. What of all of that brings you remembrance towards God? It is like Allah saying, I know you are an information machine. You are consciousness. And that consciousness is constantly going to be channeling. And I know that you will perceive storms within. None of you are born a Qutbun Aqtab who has experiences no storms. But pay attention to what these storms bring within you. Because you are making distinctions and you are making decisions and you are constantly forming your attitudes and your beliefs. And ultimately, everything that you create within your consciousness is uzran or nuzra, is either something that condemns you or something that elevates you in Allah's eyes. Al-Mursalat 
is like God saying, don't come to me and saying, but I'm the way I am, and I don't know why I am. No, pay very careful attention to everything that made you in life. Go back, revisit the storms. Revisit the aftermath of the storms. See what discernments you've made after your storms. Are they Uzra or either are they Nuzra? Is it something that going to commend you in Allah's eyes or something that's going to condemn you in Allah's eyes? For me, Ulmusalat is like standing in front of a mirror to the soul. But for me, it is thoroughly focused on what we call, in fancy language, epistemology of the human being. It's not about dhikr. It's not about flying to God like lightning in my humble view. But it is telling you Allah knows you are a sum total of what you've received and what has stormed inside your chest. Some of it you might remember, some of it you might not remember. But the discerning human being goes back and insists on remembering, the remembrance. And they want to remember so that they, they can reclaim and they want to reclaim so the light flicker does not go out. If you don't reclaim, we will see what will happen as the surah goes on. Okay. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes us from there and presents us with an imagery فَإِذَا السَّمَاءُ فُرْجَتْ وَإِذَا الْجِبَالُ نُصِفَتْ وَإِذَا الرُّسُلُ أُقِّتَتْ لِأَيِّ يَوْمٍ أُجِّلَتْ لِيَوْمِ الْفَصْلِ وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا يَوْمُ الْفَصْلِ وَيْلٌ يَوْمَئِذٍ لِلْمُكَذِّبِينَ Again, notice the music which the surah maintains. But, so, So, what you have been promised will happen. If the stars are blotted out, 
And it starts blotted out with one of the most interesting things I've read. Um, again, because it was written centuries ago, I thought it was very fascinating. Um, that it's not that the stars will die, but that our your ability as a human being to see the stars is what will be obscured. I thought that was really interesting because what, he, what this commentary was saying is that the reason that you see the stars is because of the sun and the moon. And that in the end, it is because the sun dies or the sun changes or the sky around you changes you will not be able to see the stars. But it is not that the stars themselves will disappear from the heavens. And, you know, if I remember correctly, this was a tafsir like, you know, 800 years old. I thought, wow, that's, that's very modern. Okay, anyway. So, فَإِذَا النُّجُومُ تُمِصَتْ وَإِذَا السَّمَاءُ فُرِجَتْ the Furijat, the, the Sama is um, the sky, the study Quran says riven asunder, which is a plausible tra translation. There is going to be the, the heavens around us, the sky, whatever is going to be, whether it's a rip, a tear, uh, a disintegration, uh, dissolution, whatever it is, some, the, the, the nature of the atmosphere that surrounds us will, no, will change. And the mountains are blown or scattered. In most traditional tafsirs would say that the messengers are then brought forth to meet with the nations to which they are sent. That's what well, um, the messengers are slated, as the Quran, as the study Quran says, um, slated to meet with the people that they were sent to. for the appointed day and what is the appointed day and how do you know or what is the appointed day and here we have the first refrain woe to those who did not believe, to those who have denied. And that refrain is repeated 10 times in Surah Al-Mursalat. And so, time and again, Surah Al-Mursalat will present certain things and say, those who did not believe are in trouble. Okay. So, 
the picture presented to us, according to the traditional approach, are, is the final day, or the, as the hereafter is coming, and creation is being torn asunder. The only thing I want to say about this is that in Sufi Ask Tafasir, there is consistently you'll find that they don't read this description as necessarily a description of the final day. But they read this as a description of um, the the day of the potential rebirth that a human being possesses. That a human being. And so, for instance, they, they, they'll say, which is quite, so say the stars of delusion and egoism are um, suppressed. And the, um, the heights to which your ego, uh, or what your ego reaches out to, is quenched. And the delusions of the selves are torn down. And so they see this as a description of the self that wishes to be reborn. And we say, so they don't understand this as the messengers are slated to meet with the people they were sent to, but means the messengers that God has in store for you as an individual. If you are able to tear down the mountains of ego and delusion, the revelation that you receive, the enlightenment that you receive, and that those who do not believe that there's anything in store for them as individuals, those who do not believe that they should, that there are mountains of egoism and delusions that are to be torn down, etc., those are the ones that Allah are saying, وَيْلٌ يَوْمَ إِذْنِ الْمُكَذِّمِينَ That those are the ones that Allah is saying, woe to those who do not believe. So for them, Surah Al-Mursalat is, it's not an exaggeration to say it's among the sore that is at the heart and core of Sufi methodology. It, 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 it is not unusual in Sufi orders to do zikr by, surah, by reciting Surah Al-Mursalat a hundred, two hundred times in sessions of zikr. Because for them, Surah Al-Mursalat is in fact like an inner map to journeying towards the divine.
ओके एंड देन सिक्सटीन where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says haven't you reflected upon the cycle and the cycle is constant destruction and rebirth alam nuhlik al-awwalin we've destroyed those of old thumma and they are followed by another. Thus, we deal with the guilty. Now, In traditional tafsir, they'll say, well, this is a reference to the past nations destroyed because of their inequity. And when Allah says, this is what we do with the Muslimin, the, the criminals, uh, Allah is talking about the past nations who have been destroyed, so it's like saying, Reflect upon your own nations. Other nations have existed for hundreds of years. They thought their civilization will never die. But there is a cycle. And the cycle in itself teaches you about the law of God for those who are drawn to inequity. In Sufi Ask Tafsir, they don't see this as a necessarily a reference to past nations as much as it is a reference to the cycle of life with individuals. They don't believe that those who elevate to Allah actually ever die. They, they experience physical death. But the, their soul is in Aliyin. Their soul is never experiences the agonies of death that are experienced by those who are who are away from Allah. Um, in a state of barzakh, whatever that, it's the state, I mean, a lot of Sufis believe that the truly pious are actually alive in the barzakh, that, that they feel, they, they know, they experience, they're, they're fully alert. Okay. And then again the refrain those who do refuse to believe that in fact there is a cycle and that there is a, a divine law that governs existence. One of the um, things that I've read about this specific reference, كَذَلِكَ نَفْعًا بِالْمُجْرِمِينَ is Ibn Qayyim. Uh, no, actually, I, I've 
I'm a bit premature. Um, I'll tell you about the Ibn Qayyim quote a bit later in the surah. It's not, it's not about, it, he doesn't interject a comment on verse 18. He says it about something later. Okay. Forget that. Sorry. Okay. We've created you from, this is verse 20, from base fluid. Mahin means simple fluid or, you know, the most basic element. That we lodged it in a secure dwelling place, meaning the uterus, where the we, life forms. For a known measure, that we that this is not not a coincidence but an actual divine creation this is 23 then again the refrain woe to the deniers okay in this in in for the verses that we just covered it's to give you just I can't exaggerate how often in Quranic commentaries they say something like you know it's remarkable that human beings start from something so base as fluid and then they end up in something so unremarkable like deterioration and rot and scattering into dust and it is you know between this and that is the flicker of divinity and that when we often talk about death as the great teacher that's exactly what you are being invited to reflect on the world existed before you and you came from such basic things and the world will exist after you as you deteriorate into basic things and then the question of well in that between is it really worth it What do you think, since you, you, you are so vulnerable before your existence and so vulnerable after your existence? Vulnerable because, you know, just you flicker. Just like anything flickers in existence and goes. Um, what risks are you willing to take in your life? Because after existence you control nothing in resurrection in whatever your fate is you are completely at the mercy of forces that you have not experienced and those who live their life as if they're so sure 
that there is nothing beyond. They're taking an enormous risk. Um, uh, these are, you know, classic type of comment, commentaries on, on these particular verses. Okay. ألم نجعل الأرض كفاتا أحياء وأمواتا وجعلنا فيها رواسي شامخات وأسقيناكم ماء فراتا. So, ألم نجعل الأرض كفاتا is what I want to just comment on. Um, which this is twenty-five. Let's see how they did. Did we not make the earth a receptacle? Yeah. Kifata is, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very eloquent expression, a very beautiful expression. It's like saying, haven't we layered the earth with the dead and living? So it's like, literally, it's giving you, planting an image in your mind. You think this earth is what you experience it. But this earth is layered by what God created and died and disintegrated and what God allows to walk upon it or fly in its air or swim in its seas in a certain time. And kifata, you couldn't find a more perfect expression. It's not really a, 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 a receptacle. It's like um, I don't. I, I can't think of a word. But basically, it's we, we've layered life and death, living and dead, in this earth. Reflect upon it. And if, if I was an artist, I can imagine drawing, you know, everywhere you go, there are elements of the living and dead and intermingled in this amazing imagery. Okay. وَجْعَلْنَا فِيهَا رَوَاسِي شَامِخَاتِ That we've made in it anchors. وَأَسْقَيْنَاكُمْ مَاءً فُرَاتًا That we've given you sweet water to drink. Okay. So, woe to those who disbelieve. Then, some of the most remarkable part of the surah. انطلقوا إلى ما كنتم تكذبون انطلقوا إلى ظل ذي ثلاث شعب. Okay. So go ahead to what you have lived your life denying. But you come to that expression انطلقوا إلى ظل ذي ثلاث شعب. لا ظليل ولا يغني من لهم إنها ترمي بشرر كالقصر كأنه حاملات صفر ويل يوم إذن للمكذبين. So this is now we are at 
29, uh, to go away to a threefold shadow that provides no shade nor avails against the flame. It throws sparks like massive tree trunks as though they were yellow camels. Uh, I'm going to qualify all this translation in a second. Or, uh, indeed, it throws sparks like massive tree trunks as though they were yellow camels. Woe to those who deny. What time is it? Two minutes. Okay. I, because this is... Because this is a challenge that I have to confront as I like think of like how I'm going to present this. So let's break from Maghrib now. It's a good point to break from Maghrib and then come back to our three shadows. If you want to know about the three shadows, don't go away. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Som makbul. Iftar mabuk. Have you guys broken fast? She's in California. No. Uh, who else? I didn't. Anyone broke fast? Adam broke fast. I can't see anyone else. Yeah. Because they're. I think they're probably breaking fast right now. No. In Ayah 30, the reference is to the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says first, okay, fine, go away to what you have been denying. Intalqu ila man kuntum And then go to three shadows. And these shadows, we are told, which literally would mean that they provide no shade, shadows that provide no shade, and do not avail from flame. And then that's followed be, with innaha tarmi bisharrin qal qasr and it, it, it throws flames and these flames are like something qal qasr and and jimalatun sofr we'll get to that okay so Traditional tafsir said this is clearly a reference to hell, to hellfire. And that hellfire creates three shadows. They weren't sure what these three shadows are, but for the most part in traditional tafsir say, well, it doesn't matter. We, we don't know what the three shadows are. What we know is that 
this hellfire is going to create um, three shadows, whether these are three regions or three types of smoke or whatever. However, because of various traditions reported in this context, you'll find, for instance, in Tafsir ibn Qayyim, there's a very interesting discussion about the nature of hellfire. And they say that the, the, the most important part of this discussion um, yeah, the, uh, and this is also in Tafsir Tirmidhi, among others. Okay. That it is not like fire that we know on this earth. That it is, hellfire is created from light. But that light which it was created from, again, I'm, I'm skipping over the traditions reported, that it was made dark. So it is a dark fire. Unlike fire on earth, which emits light, hellfire is dark light, dark fire which in our modern language very much sounds like fields of energy. If you read what the theologians tracing the various reports and traditions either attributed to the prophet directly or to those close to the prophet, they would clearly indicate that what they all agree upon is that this is not a fire like fire on earth. And that this fire is dark. And in fact, unlike fire on earth, it's a fire that casts shadows. And in, in modern language, you, you would say that this is in, intense fields of energy that we just simply are, don't know, we're not familiar with. Um, okay. Now, Sufi asked Tafsir, however, take a far more involved approach to the three shades or three shadows. Um, or the 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 Thalathi Shu'ab that to a shadow with three parts. And the best way to summarize it Um, you know what, let me see if there's a quote that I read that might help me summarize.
Okay, so yeah, this is uh, from uh, um, Ibn Ajiba. Um, and he's talking about the, the three shades. And it, it's a, it, this, this discourse in Sufi-esque tafsir, they get very involved. But he, he succinctly puts it all together. Yeah, he says that there are hijabun nafs an anwar quds thalath that there are what often veils human beings from the light of divinity are three things al his what they feel al khayal what they imagine and al wahm what they fantasize, the delusions. So it is what they take in through their feelings, what they take, what they imagine based on these feelings, and what matriculates and sort of evolves into imagined beliefs and delusions about their origins, about their status of life, about where they're going to go, about their standing with God, about their standing with others, about their their future, about their life, about everything. Okay. But more than what causes torment to the human soul. And here in Sufi methodology, they often talk about what they call the quwa, the, the, the force, the nature of forces that human beings rely on. And there are forces, if you want to call them energies, but they, they are what a force is what is central to living beings. Human beings have the most number of forces within of all living creatures. But Surat al-Mursalat, according to Sufi al-Tafasir, is talking about three distinct forces. القوى الشهوانية البهيمية This is um, uh, the, 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 uh, Let me first summarize the, the three forces that, that most often we encounter in, when it's bad news. They talk about القوى البهيمية القوى السبعية and القوى الشيطانية القوى البهيمية are like the force that is typical of um, uh, animals that are not meat eaters. They, they, they're, they uh, the, the vegetation eaters, if you will. The, what do you call them? Uh, not carnivores. Um, omnivores. Uh, omnivores. Omnivores. Yeah. Um, 
or uh, herbivores rather. Herb. Herbivores. 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 Oh, er herbivores. Okay, so, and these are forces of laziness, sloth, you, you want to consume and rest and consume and rest, be at sort of repose. Al-Quwa are the more carnivorous force. This is the force that goes into aggression um, where you you the force that is typically uh, people have in sex uh, that people or most often is, unless it's it's love uh, uh, force that they have when they collect uh, that that guides greed um, and stealing people's rights and so on and so forth and when the forces of Qawal Bahimiya, the, the herbivore forces, and the Qawal Sab'iyya, the, the, the more aggressive forces, are not constrained, they are ultimately mutate into what they call the Qawal Shaitaniya, with the forces that that becomes irritated and impatient with any notions of subservience to divinity or any limitations that control its own discretion. So you, you rely on these, if you rely long enough on the forces of sloth and laziness and the forces of aggression and greed, eventually what overtakes you is what they consider demonic forces. And the demonic force is a force that rejects um, constraints, rejects obeying anyone, learning from anyone, uh, that sees itself as sufficient and ultimately that sees itself as equal to God. Although even though never can saying, I am God, or rarely, if it goes out of control, but effectively, that is what you start seeing yourself as. The, 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 the end, the ego becomes so inflated that you and shaitan become buddies. And it's called the shaitaniya also because that's the force that, according to Sufi-esque traditions, um, it has, it's like it has its scent that attracts Shaitan. De demons pick the scent of that force like sharks pick the scent of blood and water. And Shayateen are so attracted to that that they start surrounding a human being that has become like that and in worst case scenarios, they possess the human being, but in most cases, even if they don't possess the human beings, they are buddies. They, they, they blind the human being so much that, uh, and when that person dies, 
that person is in the company of demons from the very beginning. Okay. So, what Ibn Ajiba then is saying here, so he's saying that Hijab al-Nafs and Al-Wara Qutsalat, that things that obstruct sight of the divine is the feeling, imagination, and delusions. By obstruction, what they do is that when they obstruct is that they unleash these forces. These forces start growing out of control. Um, so, on the one hand, it says you have the forces of the aggressive forces and the docile forces, the shahwaniya al-bahimiya, meaning the, the, the forces of the carnivore, the meat eater, and the forces of the herbivore, the, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have a qawal ghabbiya. A qawal ghabbiya are forces because the forces of aggression and an herbivore are often paradoxical and inconsistent. So you, you have both are growing within you and they'll often clash so what results are deep scars and fissures in your psyche and what results from the deep scars and fissures is anger and re restlessness and resentment you are angry and you don't know why or you get quickly angry or you're just frustrated, you either think all the time you deserve better, you think all the time you're not treated right, you deserve. All, you think all the time, uh, I, I'm annoyed, I'm irritated, whatever. These are known as a kol ghabbiya, the angry forces. And they are often directly grow out of an imbalance in the forces that, ha that have already been unleashed within you because you're obst you are obstructed from the divine light because of your feelings, because of your imagination and your delusions. And then it says that as a result of these al-quwa al-shahwaniya al-bahimiya and al the, the these two, the, as we said, the carnivore, the herbivore, and the angry forces, what comes to the fore is what he calls al-quwa al-wahmiya shaytaniya, is that the forces of all that, the identical forces that led to the rebellion of, the, of Satan. Arrogance, egoism, racism, bigotry, all these things. And in Sufi-esque tradition, the three shades that the Quran is referring to are these. 
so the three shades when 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 God says, "Okay, go ahead to what you've been denying," God is saying, "Okay, I've warned you. I've told you about." my messages i've told you that you need to draw closer to me but you've insisted on taking whatever path you've taken now i'm going to let you to your three shades i.e the three distinct forces and so Ibn Ajiz comments on this and he says that those who are overtaken by these three shades, what becomes typical of them, that what becomes classic or typical of these people is that they're always angry, pissed off, annoyed, irritated, they're harsh, they're cruel, they're not very sensitive. Ghilza is rudeness. Um, they're rude, they're abrupt. Uh, they're not nice people. They're, they're not very sensitive, caring people. And cruelty. So he's saying that these things are symptoms of the disease which is caused by the obstruction from the divine light, as we said. So, I mean, in typical, what you find in, in a lot of the Sufi literature is that they always start by, you know, with, well, among the ways they start is that they ask, what is obstruction, or what is obstructing your perception of the divine light? How how do your feelings work? How does your imagination work? And how does your thought process that leads to your beliefs or what they call delusions uh, and what uh, work? Because these are the windows that need to be fixed in order to get the rest in balance. So all of this, of course, is important because إِنَّهَا تَرْمِي بِشَرَرٍ قَلْقَصْرٍ كَأَنَّهُ جِمَالَةٌ صُفْرٍ So, when it comes to saying that it is throwing out fire and here, of course, uh, this is verse 32 throw uh, sparks like massive tree, tree, tree trunks so in traditional tafsir they say qasr means either tree trunks or fires that are so big like palaces uh, the reason that they say tree trunks is actually because qasr was one of the as a word in old Arabic meant pieces of wood that you cut up and saved to use as firewood 
in the winter. These were no, known as the Qasr. Um, another, the more common understanding of the word Qasr is a, is a palace. So some understood it as fires as big as palaces. However, when they say that they are throwing out fires like Kalkos, uh, where is it? There is another meaning that I can't find it, but it doesn't matter. There's another meaning that it is throwing out fires, kalqas, um, um, fires that cause inner corrosion. Fires, corrosive fires to the self. So in Sufi as Tafasir, then they understand the three shades when they're throwing out fires. It says exactly as we explained. So then, In traditional Tafasir, there is a lot about what Jimalatun Sufr means. Because Jimala Sufr could mean a color of camels, most unlikely, but you'll find it in a lot of tefasirs. It could mean um, thick pieces of rope that they use to tie ships with. It could mean molten uh, um, uh, copper. It could mean rocks. It's certain dark type of rock. So in traditional tafsir, typically when they come to Jimalat and Sof, let's see what the study Quran said about it. Um, oh, yellow camels. They took the most, the least likely one. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the study Quran said yellow camels. In traditional tafsir, they'll say, well, you know, the sparks are either like yellow like camels or uh, like rocks or like molten copper or like these thick pieces of rope that they use and so on and so forth. And they say basically it's an image of the, the fire, of hellfire. And that, and then they ha there's some discussion usually, well, if hellfire is dark fire, black fire, so why is it described as sufr here? And there is, again, another discussion about this, that, well, sufr doesn't necessarily mean yellow, but could mean the, the, the um, a, a tinge of blackness. And that's why those who said it's, it's, it's like yellowish black said it looks like camels because that's how certain camels looked at the time. Okay. So, but in Sufi Astafasir, they take Jamalatul Sufr, typically to mean that 
this crucifier becomes like rope that ties the soul, shackling it to itself. It is unable to reach out and connect. And you get some of the very fascinating descriptions here. It's unable to connect to living things. It's unable to connect. They say things as, as amazing like that. Uh, it's unable to listen to the, the, to the supplications of, the, of, of nature. That a truly free soul will hear the supplications of nature, will heal the supplications of mountains, will heal the supplications of birds and animals. But this shackled soul hears nothing. Life and existence is ultimately, there are no extensions to the self. The self is contained within. It exists and then it dies, never having understood anything about how it relates to everything around it. Okay. This is now uh, 35 and there's no point to saying anything. You will see all your deeds. In fact, you will see yourself for the, for in, in its ultimate truth. And this is again reaffirms that image that whatever the, the mechanism, you will see your life the truth of your life, the truth of your actions, the truth of your attitudes, the truth of your sins, your misdeeds or good deeds or whatever, in its most unadulterated form, and there will be nothing to say. And the the only thing about uh, is that human beings are um their first reaction when they despair of getting away with something is to start promising that it will never happen again and that will come later when people start saying well send us back give us another chance and we'll do it, get it right this time but at the point of accountability at the the Amok of Azim, the 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 where they stand being held accountable. There's no negotiations. There's absolute silence, as people are seeing the truth about themselves. 
Um, of course, this is in the tra traditional approach. In Sufi Ask Tafsir, they when they talk about Yom al-Fasl, they, 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 they agree that this is now the point where Allah is saying there will be a day. But they normally see Yom al-Fasl as the day of death. That we're not even getting to the hereafter. This is the point where you die. And when you die, the oops come in, comes in. That, oh my God, I've really messed up. And at that point, it's, it's too late. And then on 39, where um, meaning that if, if there's anything that you could do to, to respond to the inevitability of your fate, go ahead and do it. Um, and then you have 41 and 42 and 43 and 44. Um, this is a description of those on the other side, and I'm not going to spend time on that because we've talked about uh, the tendency in traditional tefasir to see all the pleasures of heaven in material terms. In Sufi Ask Tafsir, all the pleasures of, of heaven are seen in symbolic terms. And we've talked about that before. So for instance, when it says, then they, they say these are the fruits of learning and wisdom. And we've encountered this before. Drink and eat, they say, you drink and you eat the joy of uh, taking in the beauty of the divine. So they, they, they see all references to material things in heaven like that as symbolic and not literal. And we've covered that before, so... Okay. And again, those who are now denying that there is a positive reward. This is 46. Eat and enjoy yourself a little. Truly you are, it's not you are guilty, but you are criminal. So here, both traditional and Sufi agree that this is a reference to God saying, those of you who are not going to see it, go ahead and enjoy yourself on this earth because in comparison, it's nothing. But the reason I pause at this, at 46, is because of Ibn Qayyim's quote that I, um, that I told you about earlier. Um, the reference to those who, you know, approach to life is that let us enjoy life while it lasts because it's going to end and, and then we're done. Ibn Qayyim writes, Subhanallah kan bakat fi tana'um al-zalim ayni armalah wa ahtaraqat 
كبد يتيم وجرد دمعه مسكين I, I just really like this quote he says subhanallah how many for the sake of a zalim for the sake of an unjust person to enjoy themselves how many widow cried and how many orphan suffered and how many poor person or weak person shed tears that phrase is worthy of framing and, and you know putting on a wall um, because it it embodies what I was talking about at the very beginning of the halakha Islam to be a Muslim you notice the tear of a widow the suffering of an orphan the suffering of the weak and dispossessed and miskin. Islam was never about siding with the zalim, siding with the unjust, never. And so when I see in modern orientations, this new type of, this grotesque deformity of Islam that sides with the zalim, or does not talk about how many, how many khutbas or how many Muslims do you hear today Talk about the weak, the, the suffering, the dispossessed, the, the widow, the orphan. They've turned Islam into, you know, meaningless stuff. What you wear and what you, what you eat and what you... That's not what Islam was ever about. This is a corruption of our religion. It is people who have taken, have hijacked, Islam and corrupted it and to my last dying breath I'm going to keep saying that because it is the truth this Islam that you see that doesn't notice the miskin or the orphan or the widow is a still is a stillborn dead Islam if that was Islam, it would have never survived. It would have never overcome Judaism and Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism. People would not have bought into it because it would have offered them nothing. Modern Muslims have to wake up because they're destroying the tradition. Okay. This is 47. Those who, again, the refrain, and if they're told, bow to Allah, they don't. The reason I posit this is because there is a report that um, the people of, um, I believe it's Taqif. Did I write it down somewhere? 
Um, I believe it is Taqiyah, but I just I just don't want to give you the wrong information, so let, just let me make sure very quickly. Um, okay, I, I didn't write it down. I, I didn't know it anywhere. Okay, anyway, uh, that there were people, I believe it's Taqiyah, that came to the Prophet and they said we we we're willing to convert to Islam, um, but um, we don't want to prostrate uh, because in our culture, in our culture, it's an insult to prostrate before anyone, even if it's God. And of course, the Prophet said, no, you can't be a Muslim if you're not going to prostrate to God. And the reason I brought, the, I bring this up is that, of course, I've seen in um, Islam, some Islamophobic literature uh, that targets idiot Muslims. I said idiot Muslims. <laughs> um, uh, that, oh, it, it, if it, it's unbecoming for a human being to bow or prostrate before anyone, even God, uh, Jesus doesn't ask you to prostrate and bow. Let me, anyone who thinks that prostrating and bowing is not a part of the Israelite tradition, the Christian tradition, and the Islamic tradition, they're just religiously ignorant. They just haven't read religious history. But aside from that, you will not taste liberation until you understand the value of prostrating before the divine. What it means. And that prostration before the divine is complete and utter dignity with everything else other than the divine. Which again goes back to what I started this halakha with about the nature of Islam that Muslims who are subservient before injustice and oppressors and despots are not Muslim, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. And finally, the closing of Surah Al-Mursalat, hadithin ba'dahu yu'minun? What else, what other discourse can be offered them that will bring them to belief, that they will believe in? So, the more you reflect on Surah Al-Mursalat, as I said, it's been, it was used in, in Islamic tradition, especially in, in Sufi tariqahs, for elevation, for irtiqa. Um, traditional tafsir tend to just 
make it about angels or winds and then hellfire and heaven and but I mean uh, which is fine but that that's it but Surah Al-Mursalat is a deeply introspective surah it it mandates that you look at what creates the storms within what storms defined your life all of us have storms that defined our lives from some of them we remember and some of them we don't what storms perhaps even derailed your life what storms have and what storm and how do these storms color your feelings your imagination and your perception of things what the sufis call your wham your delusions and i do agree with the sufi-esque approach that we have you know the in in the greek tradition they call, used to call these humors but the 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 greek humors were different than the muslim the sufi forces or a kuwa um but that particularly that an imbalance in resolving the aftermath of storms that afflicted a human being, the self, when these storms hit you, and if they left an imbalanced state, and you didn't pay attention, and you've never restored the balance within, as the imbalance becomes aggravated and aggravated and aggravated, they do become and here I am talking literally, not figuratively. They do become beacons for demons. And that you walk around in your life. Uh, human beings, you know, there is a reason that Allah gave human beings odors. Is to tell them there is an odor to your body, but there is also an odor to your soul. Demons can smell your order, whether it's good or bad. And very pious people can also smell your the odor of your soul, whether it's good or bad. And it's not a coincidence that most of us can't smell our own bodily odor, and most of us can't smell our spiritual odor either. If you're wise, in the same way that you try to check for your bodily odor, check for your soul's odor. Because believe me, it's there. And Surah when it warns you about the three shades maybe I should share with you one last thing 
which is a nice well, well, I hope I wrote it down. I don't remember if I did. Um, no, I'm sorry. I didn't write it. There's a quote. Um, that I found in my notes, and I, I meant to copy it in my the Halakha notebook. But um, it says something very close to what I started the Halakha with, that um, the soul's perfume should be it's it's he he compares but he says it very eloquently that's why that in the same way that the human body as it comes to life it's odorless it meaning when you are mahin you are just water simple water fluid that fluid you know it, it doesn't stink or or it's not perfume nor sink it 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 has an and you grow inside of another being and then you're born and but as you progress in life the body needs maintenance for it not to be afflicted with things that cause whatever bodily odors are and then eventually upon death it disintegrates and rots and it says that the human soul, as it comes to the world, it is odorless. But, and that in fact, he has it that as you reach a certain age, he says until the age of ihtilam, or the age of um, um, puberty, uh, that it, it, there's a, a natural pleasantness to this, to the soul's odor. But then after Ihtilam, it starts either getting better or worse. The, after puberty, it starts acting like all, subject to all the laws of creation. And it says that there are, it says how many people who are alive on earth walk around was a soul that smells as bad as a dead corpse. If only they knew that they walked around with a soul that smelled as bad as a dead corpse. He wonders how many of them would be immediately transformed. But then he, he, he notes and says, but the only problem is that the only way to know that they smell that bad is to accept the word of um, to accept the word of what he calls a saint, uh, uh, basically a, a a a master, a, a Sufi master, or it's what he means. To to, but they won't. And if a Sufi master tells them, they'll argue with them until they're confronted with the truth in the hereafter. It was just very, very nicely put, and very, but I didn't copy it. Okay, alhamdulillah, and that's Surah Al-Mursalat. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim.
We are back. Okay, so um, just to, actually, I have a couple of brief announcements. One is that um, we're going to try and do Tarawiya. We're going to try and end by 10.30. What time is it right now? 10. It's almost a little bit before 10, so we're going to try and uh, finish the Q&A by 10.30 so we can get to Tarawiya in the last 10 days. Sorry? Later, probably, because he has to eat, too. So 11. Yeah, okay, so 11, yeah, because we need to eat. We need to eat dinner. I'm going to need to eat. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll try to do Tarawi, start Tarawi around 11 tonight, inshallah. We've been doing um, longer sessions. I'm, I'm sorry. She's you know, forcing me forcing to eat. forcing him to eat dinner. I'm, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> um, anyway, we, um, so we're, the um, Tarawi prayers are running a little bit, uh, we're doing longer prayers um, for the last night, 10 days of Ramadan. So please join us if you can. Um, also, uh, very exciting, um, this coming Sunday, May 9th, we have a conversation um, between the Sheikh and um, the incredible scholar, I, I don't actually, I, I'm not qualified to give his background or anything, but Tark Suedan. Um, we are going to be figuring out how to make that happen virtually, so we'll be sending out more information. It's going to be an incredible talk um, that covers um, political Islam, democracy in the Middle East, Sharia, and a lot more interesting stuff. So, um, did you want to say anything about that, actually? It's one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, uh, May 9th. Tariq Sridhan is a Kuwaiti scholar. He's, he's been in the field a long time and has a lot of uh, books. Uh, he's an amazing speaker. And he, um, actually, this would be, uh, uh, he's distinguished himself, especially in the field of Islamic education and raising of children. Um, his daughter is, no, she's she not was, here she today. Oh, she was on earlier. Um, Mafaz, his daughter, so if, judging from the way he's raised his children, who are very all very extremely accomplished and extremely brilliant, so he knows what he's doing. So I, inshallah, intend to pick his brain about raising children and what his secret, what's his secret, how he, what makes him get it right, or why he got it right, or whatever. So it, it inshallah will be very interesting, um, very enlightening, inshallah. Inshallah. Okay, so um, is there any other announcements that we should raise? No. Okay. This was an incredible surah. Um, I feel like I need time to process because there's so much incredible learning that we need to ask you about, like this even the idea of like your soul having a perfume or an odor, which I'm sure no one, I don't know if anyone's ever heard that anywhere or <laughs> people are shaking their head in the room. Um, and what can be done, I guess, to, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people you can actually go to that you can ask, you know, how is my soul's odor? And who will tell you? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a question we just got on YouTube. Oh, that's a question we got on YouTube. Okay. Says something like, "How can I know if my soul smells?" How can I, I don't know, know if my soul smells? Of any Sufi masters around me. I don't know me. of any Sufi masters around me. You know, it, it's like if if uh, 
if you live somewhere where no no one can smell your bodily odor, then you can't ask anyone, but you know that bodily odor is going to result of the lack of cleanliness if you don't clean, you don't bathe. Same thing with uh, your, your soul's odor. Uh, uh, praying and fasting and giving sadaqah cleanses the soul, purifies the soul. Uh, sin sullies it. I mean, it, sin really does leave an impact. Every time you do something haram, it leaves an impact. Um, it's as simple as that. I mean, don't 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 concern yourself with with the smell. Just concern with yourself with what you know, and what you know is that you have an obligation to keep it clean. So keep it clean. Any questions in here? Okay. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Uh, do you have, or thank you for this amazing halakha. Do you have any further tips on how to do introspection? For example, do you recommend dhikr first or gratitude or salah first? Anything else? Thank you. Um. Dhikr is is is, uh, is always a good way to to start because um, you need Allah's help and dhikr is the way that you will get Allah's help. It's you know you, you need that formula of taking one step towards Allah and Allah taking 10 steps towards you. And you get that from the, the, the more dhikr you do. But then dhikr by itself is not, um, is not enough. Uh, if you want that, that inner look within the self, think of your fears, what are the things that, and what are the things, it's fear and anger. What are the things that make you afraid and what are the things that make you angry? Uh, especially these two. And unpack them. You don't, don't accept superficial responses. Don't accept responses, well, is because people are unfair to me. Well, people are not sensitive. Well, people don't treat me right. Ask about your own culpability. Don't worry about what people do. Think about what your role is in your fears and your anger. And commit as you, and, and I actually, I'll, uh, I mean, what works for me is, is pen and paper. I like to keep, I've always kept a diary of, to pin myself down so that I can't misremember things later. Uh, so I can't delude myself. So I actually write down 
whatever I my conclusions are or and uh, this way I am forced to go back and read them and you know it, it then that leaves less of a wiggle room and as you break down the elements of the things that make you afraid and the make you things that make you angry work on healing them ask Allah for help with healing ask Allah for help in working through whatever weaknesses that you see inside you and especially if these weaknesses go back to sin uh, anger and God you know not of course sometimes we we have fear and anger not because of sin but because of um, the way that our for in, for instance our um, imagination or our uh, the way we interpret reality and the way they interpret reality sometimes is because we feel insecure sometimes because we feel threatened uh, sometimes because we feel we don't uh, feel confident um, sometimes it's because we haven't really worked at cleansing the company we keep there are you know it, it's this honesty with the self if your environment can be improved so if you know ask yourself well what would be needed for me to create a better environment uh a more an environment more conducive to divinity to the presence of angels around me rather than the presence of anything demonic and so on and so forth and there are, by the way, there are things, I mean, there are, um, there are books that could help in the journey. I mean, I, I still like uh, the book by Shittuk and Murata, The Vision of Islam. I think it's helpful. I think uh, Ghazali's Hiya'alumuddin has been translated to English. Um, you know, you can't go wrong with reading the chapters of uh, that book. Uh, the the English um, translations, especially the by Islamic Text Society, are very good. I wouldn't use the. Uh, there are a lot of translations that were done in India or Pakistan. I wouldn't use these. I would use the Islamic Text Society translations. Um, there are uh, there are now there's a considerable library in the English language written by a lot of them were written by Sufi converts and um, because they're written by converts I find these books uh, because they went through the process of cleansing the self, they weren't born Muslim. I find these a lot of these books very helpful and very useful. Um, what are those called? Huh? Did you have a name for? No, but in in the reading list, the, uh, don't mm -hmm. we have a reading list that mm -hmm. I've on done book, on bookshop.org? Yeah, any of the books on Sufism that mm -hmm. I've recommended. 
would fall in that category. Uh, because I know that I've gone through a lot and I've recommended a lot of books. Uh, uh, so let me just plug that for a second. Um, we have um, our own page on bookshop.org backslash usuli. Um, it's a, a website of independent um, booksellers and it's intended to support independent bookshops, so it's great. Um, and we have a list that we actually um, took the bibliography of you know every Islamic book that's been written in English since I don't know when, like as many as we could get. And then the Sheikh went through that entire bibliography and identified which books he would actually recommend. And then actually Joe put it on our web on our, our bookshop. So the ones that are, are still in print, you can go there and you can actually purchase them. Um, but also on our website we do have that list available. So you can see like if there's any particular um, sorry. Do you want to show it? To the oh, okay, kids? sure. Um, if if you have, it looks. Oh shoot! I just turned off. Oh, it's okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, bookshop.org um, backslash usuli or on our website usuli.org, um, you can find the list of recommended books um, across, and it's divided by um, by section or or by top topic. So there's Sufism, there's history, there's you know different aspects of. Yeah, there's philo the philosophy. All, all, I mean, yeah. it's, there's a lot there. It's a very valuable source. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the books that he recommended, he's read, and you know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, all, I've only recommended books that I've read. So. And there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I actually wanted to ask the question um, in the Sora when you're talking about how people. Um, about the storms that affect people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so fascinating. Like, I mean, of course, I, I think about my own experience, and I mean, everyone, as you said, has storms that change their outlook. And for someone who um, grew up in uh, an environment of trauma, as so many Muslims do now, um, these storms are devastating. They ravage everything about you yeah. so that you can't even see reality for what it is unless you actually have taken th the time to address the trauma and heal. Because everything then, if you, short of that, you see everything through the lens of your trauma. And you don't even know the effect of the trauma on you. So um, I just, you know, wanted to ask, I guess, if you're in that situation where you know that you've come from a situation of trauma, you recognize the signs in yourself, you get angry, you get you know, irrational, you feel under attack all the time, because these are things that I felt, definitely, um, because you're in that survival mode when you're in a situation of trauma, you feel like everything is a potential attack. Um, how do you get out of that if you don't have like the benefit of a sheikh or a you know, a community or something like that? Um, I mean, honestly, it, if, um, if you don't have the benefit of a, of, of a guide or a supportive community, of course you are greatly hampered, but remember that accountability is directly proportional to 
ability that God has given each and, and including the circumstances. So, I mean, God's journey. Um, you know, there is it possible for people to self-heal with, with, without anyone's help? Well, it's done, but it, it's been done. It, it, it takes a, a heroic effort, uh, but there are, you know, inspirational people who've done that. And they've done that within, whether within Islam or even out of Islam. Um, you know, when I find um, when I find people who who've gone, it's, you know, through experiences like being trafficked or um, sold into sexual slavery and. And then they they pull themselves out, and not only do they, they, but they, you know, they eventually pull themselves out and marry and get and have children, and they raise their children well. It's living proof that it's it's possible. But there's no question that, it, and for people in that situation, I just pray that they turn to God because if. I, my my I have an absolute belief that uh, Allah's mercy extends to people in, in these situations. The key thing is to keep your eyes open for God's mercy extended to you because there's too often people in that situation, even when God extends, an opportunity, they allow their fears and their anxieties to mess it up. In other words, they don't capitalize on it, or, or they are mar, or, or quite often, they they become addicted to the trauma itself, and so um, even there when when there are a healing route. Um, self-pity is uh, self-pity and and just the when you get accustomed to to hurt and pain it, it is an addiction it's it's what you're not used to it's what what's normal for you so to not have it it's very unsettling um, and you 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 don't know what to do with yourself if you don't have it. You have to fill that emptiness with something else. Um, there are, you know, hist Islamic history is full of people that through their journey with God have made that healing. And you know, but but it takes yeah, it takes an enormous amount of effort, an enormous amount of commitment. I remember that when when I was struggling, you were like teaching me about that, I, like victimhood, and the idea of always feeling that you're the victim, someone's doing something to you, is so it's such a natural like 
as you said, addiction. Yeah. And I found like the the key to I think turning the corner was finally just deciding I'm not a victim anymore. And I'm not going to accept that if I'm angry or that I'm hurt or something happened to me that I'm the victim. And well, and you, you always pushed me to say, well, what's your accountability? Well, <laughs> so. you, you, can't, you, you, you can't make excuses for yourself. I mean, it's like, you should always be the last person to excuse, let other people forgive you for your errors, but don't forgive yourself. Like the best advice I can give people who, who want n not to have a stinky soul is uh, don't forgive yourself. Let other people forgive you. That's that's great if other people forgive you. But y you should be you should hold yourself to account. Uh, and just to clarify, when you say um, uh, back to this original question about do you start with thicker? Like a lot of times, people who have not had experience with like vicar, when I hear the word vicar, I think, okay, I sit in a dark room, I just repeat something over and over again. But that's not really what you're talking about, right? It's vicar is remembering God or having God with you and everything that you're doing during yeah. the day. Yeah, I mean, vicar, there's both are forms of vicar. Vicar is to get into the habit of remembering God is there and commit yourself to the proposition, I'm going to look for the signs of God's presence all the time, everywhere. Uh, I had a teacher that would say, God is always there it's your own blindness that prevents you from seeing God. So if you look hard enough, you will see God in the smallest of things all around you. Um, I mean, and later on in life, I found out, I mean, it's a long story, but I found out from him that he even meant that uh, I hear God in a in a melody. Um, in my case, it became I I would hear God in a in in a classical music phrase. I would hear God in a Unkarsum song, as scandalous as this might ha sound to to some of you. Um, uh, I I would hear God in in the way, uh, 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 you know the Quranic reciter turns a phrase. Uh, God is in the miracle of creation that surrounds us. Of course, what you hear, what he also wanted me to do, and what he taught, what he would always tell us, is that the the ailment of modern human beings is that they have locked themselves up in cocoons away from God's signs, away from Ayatollah. And what he meant by this is urban settings. You, you exist in an apartment. In, in Egypt, of course, it's an apartment, right? And it's a cocoon. You're living in a little box. So you'd say, go, go, and, and every day, look, listen to the, to, the, to the birds, 
smell the air, uh, in, look for, observe God in, in God's handwork. Um, and so, you know, anyone that would say, well, I, his first year, anyone that would say, well, you know, I'm having a hard time feeling God, say, well, you know, how long have you been locked in inside? Uh, that was always his response, is that, well, you know, get out of Cairo. Get out of the, you know, the, 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 the crowds and the polluted air and the dirty streets and the, which is all just not natural. It's not natural for human beings. Um, yeah, but then the other, like, you know, taking a surah like Mursalat, and now that you know the meaning of al-mursalat, it's one thing when you don't know the meaning, but once you understand the meaning, and reciting it to yourself and reflecting on the meaning, that's dhikr. And the more you do it, it's dhikr. Two, you know, how, how many times have I, only Allah knows how many times I've recited the fatha private and public, but do you know, I still, res I, I've never felt I've actually comfortably feel in command of the Fatha. I still recite it in dhikr and marvel at its meanings. Um, you know, and then I've done tafsirs on it for hours and I've read everything I can get my hand on about that has been written about the Fatha. I've, you know, done Arab of al-Fatha, left and right and right and left and up and down and down and up, but still, it, it just, and that's dhikr. There was a famous uh, Sufi, uh, a woman who established a Sufi tariqah in Andalus, uh, whose her entire tariqah was based on dhikr of the Fatha. That's the only thing they used in their dhikr, is the Fatha. And um, she, she reached unbelievable levels of her just using the Fatha, so. Uh, on the question of dhikr, is, is there a particular uh, dhikr in this surah, or is it the entire surah? The entire surah. Entire surah, okay. And then um, to build on the question about Fatiha, um, general question, um, you mentioned that Surah Fatiha is the seed um, to Project Illumine, and um, you mentioned that it's the key um, in your original commentary on this. Uh, my question is, would the professor do another Illumine Halakha on Al-Fatiha, or perhaps an update on it? Yeah, subhanAllah that you, you asked this. Who asked this? Adit. Adit. Where's Adit? Uh, he just went off the camera. He just went off camera, but he's, a lot of times he's on YouTube. Uh, subhanAllah that Adit is asking this, because um, I was just thinking of this earlier today, and did I, did, uh, is it my, did I, am I fantasizing that I gave a halaqa on al-fatha recently? Yes. yes, you did it a long time ago, back in the 90s. So it's not recent? Not recent. 90s? 90s. It was the very wow. first Wow, where did life go? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Fatha does warrant um, an updated halakha. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know, you young people out there, before you know it, you're going to be old and senile. So, you so you better time. hurry up and do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it feels to me. I don't know where my life went. Senior in this room. Oh, no, not not by much. You're just older a couple of years than me. No, a couple more. <laughs> no, but you you're you're unlike unlike uh, you're truly you're, you're in your full powers. <laughs> Look, you're 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 ten times healthier than I am. Just alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Yeah, and you have two PhDs. Who has two PhDs? <laughs> Yeah, you, you have more, you have brain, enough brain cells for, to, to, you have brain cells to spare. You can, you can lose a whole bunch of them and not care. Okay. Yeah. Yes, and what someone from in the interactive group said, Parv Auntie Parveen is a timeless angel. Oh. From Adam. Thank you, Adam. Um, she has two doctorates. Who has two doctorates? I know, who has two doctorates? I'm going to get two. Oh, okay, Ron is going to get two, inshallah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to combine these last two questions because we're down at the end of our time. Um, how do you feel about people with personality disorders who tend to have a skewed perspective? And then um, to add to my question, is there perhaps less accountability from God's perspective for people who have experienced and perceived the world from such a painful and unjust rooting? God, you have to remember that God's justice is absolute. It's, I mean, one, mental illness is, is every bit as real as physical illness. Mental illness, in fact, I mean, I would rather have physical illness, all types of physical diseases than mental illness. Why? Because mental illness is, 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 it, is it tests the, like the hardest, among the hardest tests that a human being can get. I mean, I think people who have a mental illness, their reward with Allah, it, 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 it just got their reward with Allah is, is you know, in, in, it, they could be the object of envy in the, in the hereafter because it, it's, God is just, God and God understands human illness better than we will ever understand. And many forms of mental illness remove the element of voluntariness altogether. There, there is no, you know, the, all of liability and accountability is premised on the assumption of voluntariness. And to the extent that your, the, the element is reduced so does accountability. And that goes also for trauma. Allah knows the effects and impact of trauma better than any human being. And Allah knows when trauma creates compulsions that are truly beyond control. And compulsions that even make it very difficult to control, even if it's not beyond control. And Allah is just, and never forget that. What we say is, 
is just don't be in the habit of making excuses for yourself, but always trust in a merciful God. So, you know, um, that means to the extent that I, I have to always compare myself to those who are worse off so that I realize the extent of the blessings that Allah has given me. But if if I know, and, and there's, you know, the, the, there's a famous hadith uh, of the woman who suffered seizures, right? And she goes to the Prophet and she says, uh, you know, I'm, the the thing that bothers me about my seizures is that when I, sometimes in my seizures, my, when she suffers a seizure, she, her, she becomes physically exposed in, in public. And she says, you know, can't you pray Allah to, to Allah to take away my seizures? And the the prophet's response is to to say, you know, I can, but this affliction that you have puts you in this and this in such and such state with Allah. Now that you understand your position, because of that affliction, you still want me to pray, and she says no. Once she understood. the extent to which, to which she gets a break from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of these seizures, she thought it's not worth it to, to, to have them come to an end. So anyone who's, who knows that they are suffering any type of um, mental illness, psychological illness, uh, you know, they they have a special status with Allah, and and may Allah help them and aid them and be with them, and uh, they, you know, they, they should not ever think that they any less of themselves because of that. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Um, I think we're out of time now. And so thank you again for joining us for another fabulous Tuesday night. And um, join us for Tarawiyah soon. Tarawiyah. Um, <laughs> last 10 days. Yes, enjoy your last 10 days. And inshallah, we'll see you very soon on Saturday. And I think Saturday we're going to start at 6 o'clock, inshallah. Okay. Or, or Tarawiyah. Yes, so join us for either Tarawiyah or Saturday, <laughs> 6 o'clock, inshallah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.